Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Genomics Lab. We have just filmed a very, very exciting episode. Um, we loved we've it. Got, <laughs> we absolutely loved it with Dr. Andrew Lee from um, the Bragg Centre. We are just blown away. We, we really, this is one of our favourite episodes that we've done. Yeah. It is different. Yeah. We always say it, so, but this okay, one is. Listen, <laughs> we always say, no, oh, but, no, this one is different. I promise you guys that this one is actually different because we're kind of steering a little bit away from genomics, but stay with us because we are talking about DNA still. But we're discussing, I guess, like biotechnology, really? Yeah, applications of like DNA engineering. It's really it's cool. It's just amazing. Really cool. Really, really cool. Um, and he did like an amazing job of explaining everything yeah like, passionate about what he does you could that definitely comes through doesn't it mm-hmm. yeah definitely so um what else do we need to tell so next week we are not releasing an episode no we'll be releasing uh, oh yeah so today's episode and then we're skipping one week um we have our end of year boards and mm-hmm. We're pretty busy at the minute, aren't we? So yeah, we're just are... taking some time off after the board as well, like just relaxing a little bit. Yeah, um, because it's just a stressful time. But we will be back in two weeks' time after this episode. Yes. Um, so we're just throwing a pre-warning out there for Joe and Kate, the only people who get. <laughs> oh, by the way, my mum listens still. She still yes. listens. Yes, Joe. <laughs> I was like, mum, like you need to listen because you got a shout out tomorrow <laughs> she was like oh my god she was like I still listen so good good cool. we've still got still have two got, dedicated got fans <laughs> um it's been another busy week in our lives haven't we still banging on with those paper manuscripts well by the time this episode is out the it, second draft will be done submitted. well maybe not submitted but, but the draft the draft to your supervisors yeah before the third round of revisions just from the supervisors <laughs> uh so yeah busy busy week let's um, just get straight on week, because you yeah, guys are all gonna love andy was so long so it was it was get on with today's episode Hi everyone and welcome back to the Genomics Lab. So today we are excited to have with us somebody a little bit different, Dr. Andrew Lee from the Bragg Centre at the University of Leeds. Yeah, so um, Andy is uh, a weaver of DNA and a nanoscale filmmaker. So if you're not really sure kind of what that is, like me and Liv weren't, we will pass you over to Andy to tell us a little bit I'm more. just gonna say something really quick which is that I feel like we always say like oh we're doing something different but today we're not lying no it really this is time, it is actually <laughs> something very different <laughs> so Andy would you like to give us a brief introduction to what it is that you do yeah absolutely um so as you say it is uh, distinctly different from your um normal uh 
discussions on, on this podcast, but um, the, the tangible connection that I, I wanted to, to discuss and bring was DNA, obviously. Yeah. So everything is uh, on the podcast is talking about genetics and, and genomics, but um, what we do with, uh, with DNA is something that's quite outside of the box, really. And we look at DNA as a material yeah. to rather than to to hold genetic information to and to kind of code with we look at it in terms of actually the chemical properties of dna and being able to make things out of those uh, out of the physical um uh, chemistry of dna okay so uh, so so what we so the little bit of background as to what we're uh, what we tend to do is we we essentially use this uh, DNA as a molecule to create shapes, structures, functional devices at the nanoscale so that they can self-assemble um, and that we can then use these in a, a, variety of man uh, a variety of ways. So for example, what we work with is, uh, is creating biosensors or, or tools to study enzyme activity. Okay. Um, so uh, DNA, is the reason that you've chosen DNA to be kind of your material, is that because of its kind of unique properties, the fact that it holds such a lot of uh, information, it's it's small, kind of what, why DNA? Yeah, so DNA has got uh, many great properties. Um, I mean, number one of which is abundance. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's very easy uh, to get hold of DNA. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we know a lot about it. So we understand its structure incredibly well. Uh, and it has a, a, obviously a very predictable geometry. So this helical um, yeah. shape that we, we know. Um, the other great properties about it is at these length scales mechanically, it's, it's actually pretty stiff and pretty tough. Okay. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's quite good to build with, but also the key property here is, is the specificity of the um, predictability of the base pairing interactions. So we know, obviously, um, A, T, G, and C obviously bind together in a, in, a, in a particular way, which allows us to encode information. But we can use the exact same um, predictability of that pairing to specify how multiple different pieces of DNA come together to create a shape instead. Okay. Wow. I feel like it's I really have so many questions for you today. Yeah. Um, I, can I can I start with um, a question, Ellie, if you don't mind? Yeah, go for it. I'm was I'm just like just listening to you. I'm interested in like what is your your background? Like, how did you sort of get into this? And is there like sort of a typical background for people who are in this field? Um, well, I, interestingly, my background differs distinctly from the people that are, are typically in this field. Uh, so kind of touching on my background, then I, I'm, I come from bi a biology background. I'm, I'm a biologist by training. Mm -hmm. um, and then I veered very much through this particular topic uh, into um, material science, effectively, into to engineering uh, topics. And then I've then used the, the, the DNA-based tools, essentially, to then uh, be, become more of a biophysicist, so to, to actually study uh, uh, biology again but using physical tools such as um, the atomic force microscope mm -hmm. but that that's quite just uh, different from the uh, the majority of people who work in in the dna nanotechnology fields because people typically come to towards that from an en a very engineering or a very um actually a computer science background okay uh, which is is a bit 
a bit different to maybe what you think, obviously, but people are treating essentially DNA, as I say, as a material and kind of ignoring the fact it has any biological relevance at all. So in, in terms of making structures and shapes out of DNA, it's more of a, it's more approached from a, a mathematical um, computer uh, direction of how best to actually weave a piece of DNA to, to form a shape, you know, kind of algorithmically, how, how best can you root that? Um, to form the desired object. So that's kind of the, the point of view that uh, a lot of people come to it from the field. Uh, nowadays, though, you are getting a lot more people coming in from um, a, a biological background, but in terms of actually applying this technology for an application such as uh, biosensing or, um, or, or performing biophysics. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like there must be like a lot of like everything like physics chemistry math you need engineering that, though, just don't you in such a kind of sorry to if i don't mean to be offensive at all but such a strange field <laughs> i feel like i feel like you need many different areas of expertise to kind of pull everyone yeah absolutely everyone's so interests it's so that certainly you... it's certainly an interdisciplinary uh, real yeah. interdisciplinary area definitely um, definitely yeah, so, so I think it's probably a good idea at this point to, to kind of really highlight how we go about designing these structures, because yeah. then that, um, uh, that'll kind of show the precedent for why, where we are trying to seek the genetic yeah. material from. Okay. Um, so typically, there are, there are multiple different approaches to actually building objects with DNA molecules, but nowadays, the most um, widely used approach is a technique called DNA origami. Um, and that takes a very long single stranded piece of DNA and uses that as a template or, or, or what we term a scaffold. So this is where our viral genome comes in handy because uh, the, N, the N13 genome, for example, is 7,249 bases long. So we take that large loop of single stranded DNA and then you essentially in the computer weave it back and forth to approximate the shape you want and then what we then just do is go, go about designing uh, short oligonucleotides, which will form complementary, uh, which will bind complementary to certain portions that lie next to each other on that scaffold. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you end up stapling things together. So like clipping bits together. Um, and so what, what, we, what we're looking for when we're, um, what we're trying to get is basically the underlying scaffold, essentially. So if you could get, the human genome, if you could essentially um, take, you know, your own DNA and strip it down to uh, one single strand, then theoretically you could fold that up and, and form an, an object out of that as well. Okay. Uh, provided that you could, you know, stump the cost of getting IP <laughs> to synthesize yeah. the number of oligonucleotides you'd need to do that. So I have to that be pretty rich the, for that. Yeah, that's one of the limiting <laughs> factors in this. So typically for uh, an object made out of um, M13, which I say is about seven and a quarter uh, thousand nucleotides long. You mm -hmm. typically need about 237 oligonucleotide staples to mm -hmm. clip that object together, depending on the routing or, or shape that you design. So these, you know, these, these designs are typically on the order of seven or 800 pounds per synthesis, which doesn't seem like a lot, but if you're going through multiple iterations yeah. of up. the structure, then mm -hmm. you, it can start to build up quite quickly. So what 
one of the majority of the field do obviously now is, is work mainly in silico and um, and simulate these structures and actually making them is kind of the very final um, final proof I guess but uh, the majority mm -hmm. of the work now is done in silico. Mm -hmm. I just have one more burning question and then I'll leave Liv to get to hers. <laughs> Cat like how big are these structures that you can make because I'm just thinking DNA is tiny mm. so even mm -hmm. if you took all of my DNA in my body like surely you're only going to be able to make a tiny little like structure yeah. the size of like a grain of rice well that's kind of the point uh, certainly smaller than a grain of rice yeah so again, again working with the standard which is this m13 template then you typically get structures on the order of 100 nanometers okay in in, mm -hmm. in diameter so you know you are tiny, tiny. significantly tiny. smaller than a grain yeah. of rice um <laughs> You know, so the the first the first uh, uh, example of, of origami itself was um, produced by uh, Professor Paul Rothermond uh, in about in two thousand and six, I believe. And his uh, standout feature, which was uh, used to showcase this technique, was creating uh, an emoji, a smiley face. Yeah. Uh, alongside many other uh, other shapes, but there there he essentially created an emoji which was one hundred nanometers in diameter, and. Mm. You, you create millions of these tiniest emojis exactly self-assembling <laughs> emojis in the bottom of a, of a tube and you can only see them with the microscope but how novel an experiment that must have been because yeah. if you if you think about the kind of things that you you'd look at under a microscope they're all very regular structures or, or you know yeah. i don't know it's, it's not something that you would tend to expect to how see nice to see a little smiley face exactly and then you res <laughs> the result is something physically directly smiling yeah. back at you i think that's just absolutely having cool. a rubbish day in the lab and you see a little smiley smiling back at you absolutely. from your microscope that's bound to cheer you up isn't it all right well liv i will shut up for the time being because i know you also had a million and one questions yeah to andy today so I'm going to mention this now and I think we should discuss it later, but it was something like when we originally spoke, I was like, I need to ask about this. Um, so later on, I really want to discuss like the ethical side of this field. Oh, and yeah. if there is like, you know, any sort of ethics that come into it, I'm sure there must be. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. But um, so I'm interested in like, let's start with like, um, what was the point in him making this? Yeah, emoji. why did like, you want an emoji? Like, what on earth made him think, like, let me just, like, you know, make an emoji? Like, how did that come about? What was the, you know, the motivations behind that? Well, that is a great question. I think that's something that the, the funders have asked for quite, few, say, for quite a few um, years now. Imagine him getting um, easy funding. <laughs> yes. So, so I think we have to wind the clock back a little bit to kind of explore the origins of this then, really, because um, DNA origami, which was, is, is a, a subfield, a technique essentially of DNA nanotechnology. Um, that was created by Paul Rotherman in 2006, but really that was um, the, the kind of the start of the explosion of the field by taking a technology and making it easier to do. Yeah. So the idea of actually building with DNA goes all the way back to the 80s when um, Ned Seaman, he, uh, who who's a crystallographer was interested in uh, essentially trying to form uh, regular periodic arrays with which to help him crystallize um, proteins he was struggling to you know to, to, to get to, to form mm -hmm. little neat uh, little neat crystals 
And I think this is a great example of, um, we always talk about in, in science, how it's good to you uh, maybe connect with art and express science through art uh, to showcase yeah. things going on. But this was a good example of where art actually inspired science because mm -hmm. Ned always references um, the inspiration that the kind of eureka moment where uh, of uh, from from looking at a particular um, wood carving uh, by M.C. Escher called Depth, and this is a, a very strange. Um, if you if you go and look look it up on Google, it's a very strange looking um, scene of uh, a set of flying fish, effectively with their arms set out at, uh, at perpendicular angles, and it it was. Uh, it was this inspiration, I think, that he always references as saying, well, this periodic array of fish and, and the junctions of these uh, these arms, he likened it to uh, what you see in a holiday junction, so a, a four-way um, a four, um, four junction of DNA. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously it's a bit of a leap, but his inspiration came from there and was uh, that led him to start trying to essentially stick artificial holiday junctions essentially these, these branch junctions trying to stick them together into periodic arrays and seeing how you could grow something out of that and the first one of the first uh, real demonstration pieces of this was to essentially create a, a dna cube a little um a little box effectively made out of uh, of, of dna molecules so um by essentially sticking multiple junctions together and wrapping them around into into um into this little object and this was absolutely tiny uh, in, in scale so these are you know i don't know the exact numbers but kind of tens of nanometers in in uh, each side of the face so the, the field kind of really kind of exploded uh, started growing slowly sorry not exploded but kind of started growing slowly from there it was a very novel idea novel technique and he, he was very much tinkering around with it um but a lot of people other people got on board and say uh, it tends to be people interested in uh uh, computer science and, uh, and kind yeah. of um, engineering and, and, and programming effectively. So they, the people started looking at um, how you could um, start to essentially tessellate tiles of, of DNA together and try and build up larger, larger structures. But at this point, they were all still working with um, pen and paper and uh, and designing the oligonucleotides themselves from scratch. So there's no scaffold here, which I mentioned in DNA origami. Mm -hmm. So that's where um, Paul Rotherman's breakthrough with the, the origami method really kind of made things more accessible because instead of having to sit down with a piece of paper and try and write every single sequence unique so that each piece of DNA only had one place in the object that you're making, obviously if it binds to multiple different things, then you just end up with a mush and it doesn't make anything. Yeah. But you have to specify, imagine that the the sequence of the of the dna obviously it's the unique address of where it fits into the object you're creating so everything has to essentially be unique with this minimizing the overlap in sequence mm -hmm. and that gets very complicated very quickly and limits the size of the object yeah. you can make so jumping into um the origami method then essentially paul had uh, got around this problem by essentially stealing uh, a set of evolved sequence, you know, kind of this, um, uh, the most genetic efficient it can be really from a virus yeah. and, and then using that as a template. So you no longer have to work out the sequences in your head. You, you know, you do, you know, otherwise you'd end up seeing like matrix code effectively of A, T, G and C everywhere. But now you can actually route this scaffold of known sequence around an object and just back calculate 
what the uh, the oligonucleotides need to be and that really simplified the process so so that's how the field then kind of exploded from there so a lot of the funding in the field has been working out the design rules essentially and showing uh, and working out uh, uh, developing program languages essentially to um, essentially uh, work out how we can create CAD software to design these objects really simply um, mm -hmm. and the, you know, there's absolutely some absolutely amazing uh, stuff been in, uh, done in the field now but it has been a, a field that's essentially been searching for applications for the last decade or so uh, and trying out lots of different things um, and, and now we're really getting to the point where the applications are starting to emerge. And that's where now that, you know, the funding is, is obviously starting to swell because you can see real, um, real point uh, to, to, to why this is being done rather than going back to the original point, uh, areas where it was a whole bunch of people making smiley faces or, or uh, <laughs> another classic one, which is, um, the Harvard bunny. So there's a, a lovely little wireframe structure, which is a bunny, or um, I think uh, from the, uh, I think the, the, there's a couple that are uh, of little robots or waving people basically, and it, all these sorts of things. So, the, you know, I think it, it's certainly an area where people have had a lot of fun with it um, yeah. in order to demonstrate the approaches, but underpin, underlying that is actually some, you know, really technical uh, science and engineering going into this to work out essentially how to build with a with this this material and now we are entering the era where it is very much a case of how where we can apply this and what we can do with it yeah, yeah. I think it like it shows though like the importance of like academic freedom in a way yeah like Creativity. sort of people being able to just you know make an emoji in the lab because you know look at what it can lead to Exactly. I mean, expressive freedom and creativity is uh, yeah. is essential, really, to make uh, leaps and bounds in science, I think. And this is a really yeah. great example of that. Yeah, definitely. You know what you was mentioning about, like, the, the staples? <laughs> I can't, like, picture how that happens in my head. Is it done with, like, robots or chemicals? Like, how does... How, no, what so, are the staples? So, okay, so th this is... Conceptually, quite a difficult thing to describe, I guess, um, without images. But yeah. mm -hmm. if you imagine taking a long piece of string and this, and, and consider this as being the scaffold, and then on the table in front of you, you take this long piece of string and you fold it backwards and forwards to approximate a square. Okay, mm -hmm. so you've now taken this, this long string and you've rasted it back and forward to approximate this, this square and table in front of you. And now what you do is in order to keep the portions of that string that now sit uh, parallel with one another, you take other shorter pieces of string, in this case representing our staples or oligonucleotides, and you um, basically align them so that they hold these two pieces together. So half of your staple will bind to one piece of the DNA and then another half of the staple will bind to another distal part of the DNA. But because mm -hmm. they're physically wrapped next to each other, then it pins them together. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so if you were to step along the sequence of this scaffold, the two pieces that you're um, binding this oligonucleotide to have a huge separation. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. when they're actually folded next to each other, then they're set adjacent to each other. So 
the idea of the staple is essentially through the, the hybridization of the staple to these two distal regions, it draws them together and holds it in place. And if you do that hundreds of times across this entire um, single long single strand of DNA, the scaffold, then you, you hold everything into this, this uh, shape that you've designed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah. not sure if that, uh, if that was uh, particularly visual, but hopefully that- That, that was a great explanation. Yeah, I can imagine it's really hard to explain it without any sort of mm-hmm. images going on. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, just an, another question. We kind of spoke about how the playing, playing around, it wasn't really playing around, but the, the creative aspect at the beginning led to the, the, the uses that we have now. Can we talk a bit about the applications and the uses mm-hmm. of? Absolutely. Now? So, um, I mean, you can, you can get weighed really deep into this because, so what I'm talking about here is uh, applications of, I guess, structural DNA nanotechnology. So this is the creation of shapes and structures or, or um, yeah, of objects basically. But yeah. there are whole branches of, of this field that use DNA uh, to do computation, for example, or to or on the very fringe to do data storage. And that's actually something that um, big players such as like Microsoft are actually involved in. Yeah. So this is, this is not, uh, not a particularly niche thing. Um, and there, there's a lot of money going into that sort of idea, but um, uh, you, because, it, because of all these ideas that kind of branch out from this original concept, then actually the, the, it gets a bit fuzzy because it's not as easy to say uh, as to say that, um, DNA computation is separate from structural DNA nanotechnology because actually they combine to make functional devices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so what I mean by that is that if you if you imagine that you can create a box out of DNA, mm-hmm. okay, so you weave, um, just like folding a, a cardboard box up, you weave yeah. basically the sides out of DNA and it's got a lid. And inside you can, you can place something. Now, if you have, you can actually use uh, overhanging bits of DNA on that lid as a, a lock, which will only open and respond to certain environmental conditions or to binding to cer- to a certain object. This is like so, black mirror stuff. Yeah, so this is so this is where <laughs> kind of the idea of, of using DNA for computation um, comes into comes back to meet the idea of building objects out of it. So yeah. now you have a box which. Uh, in this instance, we're, we're considering having a drug inside of. Yeah. This lid will only open now when it when it uh, that lock wow. essentially finds the key. So that key could be, um, it, it could be a, a receptor on the surface of a yeah. cancer cell, for example, something that's unique to mm-hmm. that identifies a, a cancer cell, for example. Um, it could actually be circulating tumor DNA, for example. Um, mm-hmm. You could hybrid, that could hybridize to the outside of your box and then uh, help to unravel the box. It could also be mm-hmm. things like uh, the local pH or um, the the local um, uh, cation concentrations, which all wow, that's important. amazing. So mm-hmm. there are lots of yeah. different approaches that you can do, but you um, but you know it's it's a it's quite a um, a play a playground of, of things that you can yeah. do. Yeah, I feel like if someone said to me like makeup make up some random thing that would just be like the best thing in the world this is what i would come up with yeah it's actually a thing yeah so in in terms of applications then i think um if we just if we just kind of 
consider blanket applications rather than uh, than specifics. But um, certain that this kind of technology mm-hmm. um, is is finding its way into certainly into uh, drug delivery or personalized medicine, effectively. Yeah. Uh, sort of uh, following the idea of what I've just said, where you can essentially um, create a, a, a container for, for something and then open it on demand at a particular location. But it's also finding its way into, into areas of biophysics to help uh, you study um, individual enzymes or, um, okay. or, or certain uh, mechanics of how things are working at these, these length scales. It's finding its way into imaging um, and diagnostics. So there's areas such as uh, in super resolution microscopy, for example, where we use the programmable binding of DNA molecules to essentially create uh, blinking um, uh, fluorophores so that we can do super resolution microscopy. Uh, There are things where um, you you can start templating other inorganic components using using DNA origami structures as essentially a molecular breadboard to localize objects on. So we can start attaching carbon nanotubes and gold uh, nanoparticles to create um, electronic and photonic circuits, for example. You can actually use origami itself as a, as a shadow mask to actually start creating um, computer components in a more traditional way where we kind of evaporate um, uh, uh, silicon and, and, and metals and use these uh, in organic molecules as kind of templates to, to, to coat in, in these sorts of um, conductive materials. The, there is, I think, as I said at this point, it, it's very much, it, it's not found its particular killer applications because they're still very much in development, but it is being used and tried in so many different ways to do all sorts of things. It's not, it, it's not as simple as saying, well, um, we, we use this in, in, in a biological context. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's really fascinating. There's way more uses than mm. I ever would have thought. And like you say, once you start yeah. thinking about it, you can go down a right rabbit hole, can't you? I think some of the, some of the most likely applications that you might see um, commercially in the, in, in the uh, future are, this uh, using this similar uh, the idea of of using these as, as kind of templates where you can pin um, objects to so yeah. helping you to arrange things at these tiny tiny length scales uh, and, and some of the great applications of this are uh, in uh, essentially creating more efficient enzyme cascades and and inter- uh, reactions. Okay. Uh, so for things such as fermentation and and um, you know when you're we are using uh, yeast or, or other sort of uh, uh, living like organisms essentially to buy uh, products for us. Yes. Then yeah, what we can do is essentially take a reductive approach and remove uh, the, the actual living organism out of the mix and essentially just pin the enzymes that are responsible for this onto the, onto this molecular breadboard made out of DNA molecules so that they're localized within uh, next to each other and this helps um increase the efficiency of the biochemistry so without having to you know include yeast and keep yeast a yeast strain alive for example so that these are sort of that there's um that this is also useful in terms of um and i guess, I guess uh, creating products in in the uh, pharmaceutical industry as well as um anywhere where 
um, we use living organisms essentially to, to create uh, uh, byproducts for us commercially. Guys, this is actually a Black Mirror episode. Like, I do. <laughs> Have you guys watched Black Mirror? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This could be like, you yeah. know, this could be a Black Mirror episode and I wouldn't question a thing. <laughs> I, I think when I first came into this field, then it was very much a, a science fiction meets. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Me, literally. Slight reality, a slight reality, but you know, you, you can wind your way down the rabbit hole and, and get to all sorts of places. I mean, I'm never, I, I never cease to be amazed by the the kind of objects that people are creating with this. Yeah. Mm. Um. I mean, some of the, again, a lot of the thi- a lot of the things up to this point are demonstration pieces, but I, mm. you know, I always, I always see, look at, um the most amazing nature papers that come out and think well how the how have you created that and you know what, what's <laughs> <Yeah>. that <laughs> what's what's the limit basically is, yeah. is it doesn't seem to it's, it seems to continue to grow so one of the I think some of the limiting factors that we're reaching at now is um is actually scaling these technologies up so it's, I, I did mention that the availability of DNA is, is a key factor in why we actually work with it, but, um, mm-hmm. and the simplicity of the programming language, if you compare uh, the four bases, you know, the two, two interactions um, that we're working with versus say proteins, for example, um, yeah. which have, you know, obviously that's what nature chose to fold all its functional machinery out of, but that's mm-hmm. a far more complex problem to solve for, for us in mm-hmm. terms of making designer uh, proteins but um, there are certainly approaches where people are starting to look at at doing design of peptide uh, structures uh, in a similar kind of fashion but these are very yeah. very rudimentary in comparison and um, there are approaches where people are looking at doing hybrids so where you essentially use dna and you use um uh, short peptides to help clip the DNA instead instead of staples. So you're using uh, you, instead of oligonucleotides to hold large portions of DNA into position. You're using um, a hybrid of peptides and, and and DNA to create structures. But and there's there's a whole branching field of RNA as well. So RNA nanotechnology and that's equally as fascinating because RNA obviously is not as stable um, and uh, Trans, uh, forms transient products which uh, degrade much faster than, than DNA but in many cases and, and emerging applications and that actually can work to your advantage and one of the mm-hmm. most fascinating things about working with RNA in comparison to DNA is that you can obviously fold it co-transcriptionally which means that yeah. you can create designer objects which you can encode on a plasmid and stick into uh, you know kind of uh, and stick into a bacteria for example and then express uh, these these designed objects co-transcriptionally inside the bacteria itself mm-hmm. um, so that those sorts of ideas are, are, are uh, help to start scaling up the production of, of, of these structures in, in terms of being able to co-transcriptionally express um, objects inside of a living organism yeah but in terms of scaling up DNA origami structures, then you know we are we do we do struggle to get um, kind of gram and kilogram quantities of of material um, yeah. essentially. So mm-hmm. the efficiency is obviously the more complex 
complicated the structure you make, obviously efficiency uh, drops as well. And there are a lot of factors in how, in terms of salt and temperature cons uh, gradients that, that actually uh, need to be very carefully looked after in order to actually fold some of these more complicated structures. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of creating demonstrations, then it's really easy. And in terms of doing small scale experiments, um, it's, it's great. But in terms of commercial scale production, then yeah. uh, there, there is uh, a long way to go yet. Yeah, but I think that's kind of what I was saying or what I was wondering at the beginning, like how, you know, when the things that you're going to make are so, so, so tiny, how do we make that into actually useful stuff? So I guess, like you say, a long way to go, but... It, it depends very much on the complexity of the structure you're trying to make. Yeah. Um, so in terms of going all the way back to what we said about uh, Ned Seaman's original um, uh, lattice structure, essentially, that he was trying to produce, uh, you know, kind of a regular array of DNA, um, uh, sorry, DNA junctions, sorry, but I lost the word, but in terms of creating a, a regular array of DNA junctions to, in order to, to create artificial crystals that we could then uh, res, uh, put proteins inside well he's never actually really managed to get that to work in terms of actually getting the proteins inside and uh, but he's managed to grow the arrays themselves to significantly large sizes you know, so certainly millimeter and on towards centimeter kind of um, size crystals made purely out of dna wow. so mm, that's amazing uh, and and actually because obviously these these aren't just um these these aren't dna molecules which are crystallized by lying um parallel to each other but they're actually junctions um with defined spacings then he, you can he can show that these these even up to these large scales at millimeter sized crystals you can actually um they're, they're very porous and you can control the porosity of them yeah. so you can you can essentially create these crystals which you can um allowed dyes to infuse and, and switch in and out of controllably in some cases as well. But mm -hmm. he's never quite managed to get proteins to essentially reside in there in the same uh, way that he's wanted to do. Um, but in terms, of, uh, in terms of growing structures, then um, if you're wanting to make some of the most more complicated things that have been demonstrated, uh, I don't encourage people to uh, check out the work of um, Hendrik Dietz um, just a quick Google search or, or, or throw yeah. up a, um, his amazing website, which has got all manner of incredible objects on there. But he's really kind of reaching the, um, I'd say the, the, the pinnacle of what can be done now in terms of thinking of individual origami objects as Lego bricks. So yeah. he's, he's now taking, mm -hmm. um, not, not trying to fold large scale structures out of one piece of DNA origami, but essentially creating um standardized for uh, pieces of uh, dna origami as lego bricks which you can then stick together to create larger objects and that mm -hmm. obviously comes with a world of uh, of difficulty yeah. in trying to specify That's those so simple, interactions but it's like yeah. so simple but so clever uh, yeah absolutely. you've got to bear in mind this entire time that if you're creating something where you can manipulate it and click them together you know with with a your hands, a pair of tweezers, or even you know, kind of uh, nano manipulate, like kind of micro manipulators. Then absolutely, then that's a very simple concept. But all of the stuff we're talking about here self assembles itself. So you've got to be very right. Because when I asked the question earlier about like robots or chemicals, yeah, I yeah, I kind of 
forgot that it was yeah self-assemble, self-assemble. It's but I guess when it comes to like these like sort of lego bricks they wouldn't self-assemble so like well can you do it with tweezers well, or well, is it too no. small you know no 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 that they, they do self-assemble and that's they that's do. part of the challenge is uh so so the I think the the largest structure that um, uh, Hendrik has made is um, on, on the Gigadalton scale, basically. Okay. And they, these are kind of like um, very large wireframe. Uh, well, they're not wireframe, sorry, but they are um, porous balls or porous kind of ge- uh, geodesic kind of structures. And, um, and what they're made from is essentially these little individual Lego bricks, which are folded out of this M13 scaffold. So they, they fold to form these much smaller blocks. And then what he's created on the surface is are these kind of uh, projections and protrusions like jigsaw pieces that will very specifically, essentially uh, allow the DNA molecules to, to interdigitate, these blocks to interdigitate, Rather, very much like going back to a Lego brick, very much like the little tiny bits that stick out on the top of a Lego brick, which interlock with the ones below. But you can, you can create these um, interfaces so that they'll very specifically lock together. Now, the origami blocks themselves are formed through hybridization of um, the scaffold and many oligonucleotides in, in terms of staples. So there is a certain, uh, cumulative melting temperature of that above above which basically you overcome obviously the the, the melting temperature of each of the individual uh, oligos and the whole thing falls apart but in terms of actually sticking the larger object together it's actually done through stacking interactions so because um so there are no hybridizations going on at all and what you're relying on is the salt concentration to uh, preferentially allow the stacking of these uh, the ends of these helices at these interfaces to, to stick together if that uh, hopefully that makes a bit of sense so yeah what 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 he's doing is um very carefully folding these objects on a temperature gradient into these little bricks purifying them and then mixing the bricks together and increasing the salt concentration massively in order to favor them sticking together mm-hmm. and he's changing the uh, size or shape of the structure he's making by uh, very cleverly altering the um, the ratio of components in there, uh, essentially. And and so in in some cases, in order to create these round spherical objects, you you can make a smaller structure or a larger structure by changing the angle of of one of the blocks, basically that you're including. So if it's got a larger angle, you're going to end up with a much smaller. Yeah. Um, a, a smaller ball essentially but if you've got a shallower angle mm-hmm. then you can get more into the to the ring mm-hmm. essentially and you create a much larger structure so it's it's that kind of level of engineering and and, and wow. uh, that's, that's going into it but it's certainly yes it's not it's absolutely not um uh, what you term top down in any way no no one is physically um putting these uh, components mm-hmm. uh, together it is very multidisciplinary though isn't it like it really is kind of the the pinnacle of combining fields yeah um do you think this would be a suitable time to delve a little bit into the ethical side because i think we've touched a little bit upon kind of potential future uses and you know i think that it would be interesting to talk about like what what is the status of the ethical considerations at the minute? Well, that is a, a very good question. And I think largely in the, in the field, um, 
because we work with phage genomes, yeah. um, then it, ethics isn't really uh, considered at all <laughs> in terms of we're not working with uh, any, um, any, any kind of, uh, any genetic material that is uh, obviously ethically sensitive at all. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I think obviously ethical considerations come into it, uh, into play when the applications start turning towards medicine and, and, and clinical yeah. diagnostics, these sorts of things. But it's not something that personally I have any experience with, uh, mm -hmm. I'm afraid, in terms of ethical considerations of, of, of the field. Um, mm -hmm. But you, you're right, these, it, it does, it does uh, open up a, a bit of a can of worms um, in, in, in future, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because I was just like... It all comes down to the source of DNA. I think. Yeah, that was about to say, like, I was just wondering, like, if, like, just let's just say someone did it with, like, human DNA. Like, I can just imagine some people going crazy about that, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, like, the Black Mirror episode would be, like, just something going, like, horrifically wrong. And, like, I can just, yeah, I can just picture the Black, like, the Black Mirror episode now, you know? I absolutely. We should approach them with this idea. It, it comes, it'll come down to, um, I mean, I don't think you'd ever get funding to do that. I can't see anyone ever being able to justify uh, to a funding body that you want to essentially extract someone's uh, human genome and, and fold it up into a, into a structure. I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't essentially achieve the exact same thing using um, a less ethically sensitive uh, DNA source, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. So I don't yeah. think, I, I don't see that you'd encounter such a problem because I don't think you, anyone would ever attempt to do it, if that makes sense. But right. of course, you never know. I could be, you know, a crazy scientist in the lab who just thinks I'm going to do it. Or a really rich person mm -hmm. that's going to pay someone to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yes, well, I, I think <laughs> if you were attempting to form a structure with three billion base pairs then it would get significantly <laughs> expensive very quickly yeah mm -hmm. wow. i think another another factor with the human genome versus certainly in viruses anyway is that there's a lot of repeats there's a lot of sequence yeah. um that actually is is uh you don't want and that in terms of in terms of building a structure and create uh, from it that actually be far more challenging to work with yeah. Not just in, in, in length and size, but in terms of the, um, you know, the, the uniqueness of the sequence, basically. So I think uh, viruses are, are, are great to work with because they represent essentially the ultimate genetic economy. Um, mm -hmm. yes. yeah. and they don't carry around more than they need. Yeah. And therefore, the sequences are, they tend to be um, you know, fairly, uh, fairly unique throughout the genome as, best, as, 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 as much as you can be with four letters. So then sorry if I didn't catch on to this and maybe I should have, but like, what is the problem with, what is exactly the problem with lots of repeats? So what you need to be able to do is um, create essentially unique addresses that only, um, so, so your oligonucleotide staple has to be able to bind to only one region in right. your shape. So if you have an area that is full of um, AT, 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 uh, mm -hmm. throughout the genome then it won't uh, bind to that then, then you'll end you'll end up binding um at multiple locations excuse me yep. you're not going to then form the structure 
um, as, yeah. as efficiently or, or as, as at a higher yield, for example, you'll form a, a variety of different intermediates, for example. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's also, I, I guess, maybe not re necessarily related to what you just said, but while I'm talking on the topic of AT, uh, ATs, then obviously we can actually work, we, we know that uh, a, an, a, uh, an AT-based pair is um, uh, not as strong, should we say, as a, a GC, so the, the melting temperature of that is, is smaller. So we, you can use, obviously, the program the sequences that you're working with in order to favor gc content which then forms stronger structures or, or, or more heat resistant structures um mm -hmm. so uh, we do uh, we do take uh this scaffold from a virus for ease but actually now um people in the field are actually have engineered m13 itself to actually start uh, including the and packaging their own se unique sequences as well so we know we also using the same expression system of, of to grow the phage and get lots of single stranded DNA. We can actually um, hijack that and, and create uh, scaffolds of, uh, of our own design as well um, to favor uh, having larger GC content, for example, um, which mm -hmm. will make uh, more robust structures. Mm -hmm. So, as you say, yeah, it comes back to this kind of mix so of, of inter interdisciplinarity where, um, you know, you have molecular biologists and biochemists working alongside um, engineers and, and people trying to, um, you know, kind of come up with uh, computer programs, which will allow you to uh, create an algorithm which roots this, this scaffold, this single strand that you're working with, the most efficiently round an object. Um, mm -hmm. So it is a, a really dynamic and interesting uh, bunch of people to work with. Yeah. Yeah, can I imagine? I feel like this episode kind of like hits the nail on the head of like why we started this podcast. Yeah, definitely. Because even though it's not genomics, like there's literally like, I just can't imagine me coming across this at no. all. I mean, I'm sure maybe I would have at some point, but like to be able to talk to you in this, in this depth is, is really cool. Definitely. Oh, that's great. I, I, I love talking about this stuff because I came, <laughs> I came across this field when I was in my master's, uh, and you know, it just it just kind of blew me away the concept of of that what you could do with this and that people were working in these sorts of areas. And um, I, I've always been fascinated by it, and I, I love basically going to talk to other people about it, say, "Hey, did you know you could do this?" and seeing their reactions because it's all it it, it is so far out there. I think one of the yeah, I can tell you're like kind of like not immune to it. I know I appreciate that you think it's still really cool, but like I can tell you're just like. Oh yeah, we can do this. And me and Ellie are like, wait, what? <laughs> yes, ex exactly. So uh, we're I'm currently running a, a a project where we are getting this into the hands of high school students, um, mm -hmm. and that you know that, that that's really rewarding and, and wonderful because mm -hmm. it's it's basically take trying to take this concept of of kind of interdisciplinary science and beyond the textbook kind of um, yeah. school textbook kind of thing, but. But connecting it through the the material DNA to something that they tangibly know from a biology lesson, for example, so showing that science is um, it, it, it is all about creativity and connections and interdisciplinarity. It, it's much wider. Mm -hmm. um, and what's what's beautiful about DNA origami is once you kind of understand the concept of how to build with the structures, it's actually really easy to do uh, to actually make these things. I mean, if you if you really want to get the the obviously cutting edge. <laughs> 
massive structures, then yes, it is yeah. very tricky. But yeah. in terms of making that smiley face again, which was originally yeah. done by Paul, then you can design this in, um, in, in software, which is uh, freely available uh, online. Mm -hmm. It's quite intuitive to learn. Uh, and then you order all the components from IDT in a 96, set of 96 world plates. You pipette them all together with a multipet and combine it into a tube. You heat, heat it up, cool it down, and you've, it, it folds itself. And it's, it's quite literally that kind of level of sim, uh, simple. Should we do that, Liv? I was about to say, like, where should we start a GoFundMe to uh, yeah. to do this? To buy the stuff I think we do should it. do this. I think we should do that. That would be fun. But I think a, a great one for you would be to uh, to to make the genomics uh, po uh, lab podcast um, logo, logo or something. Oh my god! Oh my gosh! <laughs> How do we do this? I want to perfect. Do well, I don't know, but we'll do it. I we heard you talking about on, on previous episodes about mugs, but I think I think yeah. this one might beat it. I think this beats it. I think this beats mugs. A hundred percent. Oh, I want to do it. You've sown that little seed of idea in our heads now. <laughs> Liv's got all the computer experience. I can do the petting and the lab side of things. You know, we've got this, Liv. Dream team. We was basically we was basically born to do this together. We were. Yeah? We were. Is our calling in life? I think so. <laughs> right. Well, before we literally go on and on about all the different things that we could do with all of this, um, do you think we should start? Liv's Liv's got another question. I was going to say yeah, we'll start wrapping things up. Yeah. No. This is this is wrapping it up. Okay. Perfect. But my question is like, um, if I said to you like you could make, like one thing regardless of like money or like just anything like if you could make one thing using this technique like what would you make and why the genomics lab logo <laughs> <laughs> apart from the genomics lab logo that that is a, a a really good question and it doesn't have to be sensible it can be something like the genomics lab logo you know well yeah i, I guess um one thing that i've i've always wanted to to be able to make myself is uh is to make a DNA helix out of DNA. Uh, that sounds pretty cool. It has yeah. been, it's been demonstrated fairly recently by others, but it's uh, essentially being able to make a giant version of the DNA helix. Um, that would be by, cool. By, by folding okay. lots of other pieces of DNA to wrap around themselves and form the structure. You know? So, and the group that did it uh, termed it meta DNA. And actually ah. they, they, they've, they've used it to essentially create a larger version of of the DNA helix with the same properties that then allows you to then start sticking these larger versions together to create larger structures using the same principles with which they'd folded the smaller ones if that yeah. makes sense mm -hmm. so yeah. kind of and, and it always it always reminds me of one of those um images or, or kind of never-ending gifts that you see where it's zooming into a mirror or something and it keeps going and going and going yeah. forever because that's wasn't you know, that on black mirror oh, yes something similar to yeah so um i think i would have done i would have done something like that i mean when i when i was uh, starting out in this i always wanted to convince our um uh, my the pi of our lab if to, to allow us to make uh, the lab logo for example which eventually yeah. managed to do um and I've always wanted to make the smiley face, which I've managed to to do now because we 
because um, we're, we're doing it for this uh, this outreach project which I'm running so mm -hmm. thank you to the, the children for uh, allow, you know, enabling me to, to, to do that one but um, yeah I, I think I've always wanted to, to make uh, some of the, the more out there three-dimensional structures because most of what I've worked with is is quite basic and simple in term in, you know in terms of what you can do with it but mm -hmm. we've obviously used it as a tool for a very specific purpose to actually um to, to, to study uh, you know to do a bit of biophysics and to study some uh, enzyme mechanics basically so the kind of structures and shapes that we had to make were um more uh, application focused i guess rather than creative whereas when you go to the conferences and you meet the people i don't know who are creating uh, recreating the Mona Lisa out of DNA for example which which actually has, has been done um then then you kind of think well that's really cool I wish I could have convinced my wish boss I'd that done I that <laughs> exactly wow that's a great answer very good answer so Andy if anyone has any questions which is probably quite likely I think um can people get in touch with you and if so how Absolutely. I mean, uh, I love this field, but I am by no means the um, expert or pinnacle of, of, of expertise in DNA nanotechnology. There are so many people out there that do incredible things. Um, yeah. And but I, I'm really glad that I could even have just a little chat with you or, or, or anybody of your audience to kind of you know, uh, reveal and, and kind of uh, inspire people about the, the field. Yeah. So. I'm people are more than welcome to get in touch with me via uh, my email or via Twitter. Um, and, and uh, I guess you can tweet about the, uh, tweet about we'll my tweet you in the episode. But yeah. But yeah um, I, I love talking about DNA uh, nanotechnology and all the various things that we only very much scratch the surface in this chat here. There is so much more to, to discuss, but um, as I said, then, I, I have very specific experience of, uh, of using it for a particular application, uh, but there are there is so much more out there and, and more people to get connected with if, you, if you're really interested in it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been like really interesting. Thank you, for, yeah. thank you for getting in touch. I mean, yeah, like, like you said, different, but really, really yes, well, exciting. Yes, I'm... I'm I'm very uh, glad that you you were interested in in kind of taking this slight tangent because yeah I appreciate that it it does t steer a little bit away from uh, from the direction of your uh, uh, podcast and, and previous episodes but I I always think that it's interesting to make these connections you know yeah. the, the DNA obviously is the the underpinning idea here and yeah. it's it's I'm sure that your audience are fully aware of what it can do in terms of biology but. Obviously, yeah. you can do much more with it. Much, much more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we took the tangent. I'm very glad we took the tangent. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you so much for giving up your time and coming to Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening. Mm -hmm.